So let's generate our motivation and have a sense of delight because we have the possibility to hear teachings about great compassion. Compassion is something that's appreciated throughout the entire world, throughout the universe. And yet some beings live lives where there is little or no compassion. So let alone not receiving compassion, they don't know how to generate it within themselves. So we have this fortune this time to be able to not only receive compassion, but especially to generate it ourselves. And so let's take delight in that and generate the highest aspiration to attain Buddhahood due to our compassion for sentient beings, all of them, no matter whether we like them or don't like them. They've all been kind to us. They all want to be happy and avoid suffering as much as we do. And so let's motivate to listen to the teachings and share in the Dharma this morning for their benefit and to be able to enact their benefit in the best way to attain full enlightenment. So generate that motivation. why the jewel of Buddha is a fitting object of refuge great impartial compassion is the chief reason okay, so yesterday we talked about that and because the Buddha has uh, impartial compassion to everybody then he can be a reliable guide so uh, the Buddha isn't going to be partial towards some people and against other people but embraces everybody and wants to benefit everybody equally and then also no matter how obnoxious sometimes we act how much we break our precepts or do the opposite of what the Buddha instructs the Buddha is not going to give up on us okay, so we were talking yesterday about how all of us with issues of abandonment and rejection and being not worthy or worthwhile how we don't have to worry around the Buddha because uh, we're assured of the Buddha's compassion and guidance no matter what of course that isn't an excuse to just act any whichever way you know because of course when we uh, you know just say well the Buddha's going to care for me anyway so I'll go out and do whatever uh, that's not very smart because we're still creating negative karma and we still have to experience the results of it. Okay. But it's, it's nice to, to really think about that and then, uh, you know, when you visualize the Buddha in your practices, you know, to really feel that connection with the Buddha and to know that that connection is always there for you whenever you want it, whenever you tune in, that you don't have to worry about it not being there. Okay, verse 18. The same reason proves that the Dharma and the Sangha are also fitting objects of refuge. Hence, you are the chief arbiter distinguishing what is an object of refuge from what is not. Okay, so that's very clear, isn't it? You know, an object of refuge must be somebody who has the great compassion. Why? Because that great compassion is going to 
enable that person to always be there and to benefit sentient beings no matter what and that great compassion will motivate that person to progress along the path to full enlightenment eliminating all obscurations developing all good qualities so that they have the best uh, skillful means to be able to benefit sentient beings and the most perfect wisdom to benefit them with okay so all of those other qualities come due to that strong motivation of great compassion so that makes the Buddha and the Sangha as living beings uh, guides that we can trust and then the Dharma isn't a living being the Dharma is the realizations in their mind stream but it makes the, the realizations in their mind stream and thus the teachings they give on how to attain those realizations very reliable and uh, perfect so we can trust and that trust is very important as we all know you know uh, it's interesting we talk about faith sometimes and faith is a very sticky word in the West isn't it it's kind of a touchy word for us and the, mm, the Buddhist word in Tibetan it's Deta uh, is sometimes translated as faith but it can also be translated as uh, worthy or trustworthy yeah, or trust or confidence so the idea is that it's not blind faith but it's a belief or faith or confidence or trust that comes by knowing the qualities of the object of refuge and knowing the qualities of the path so I think one reason that the word uh, faith is so difficult for us is because we often think of blind faith don't we and sometimes as kids we were just told uh, you know to just be quiet and have faith and that doesn't work does it you know or maybe it works with some people but it certainly didn't work with us and I know for myself you know I had to ask questions and this, if I was told don't ask those questions then that actually made me lose faith or if I received answers to uh, questions that didn't make much sense then I was very skeptical of what I was hearing and so I think that's something that uh, I know for myself I really appreciated about the Buddha's teaching was I could ask all the questions I wanted in fact I was encouraged to ask questions one of the first things uh, Lama Yeshe and Zepa Rinpoche said in my very first meditation course was you don't need to believe anything we say and I went good now I'll listen yeah because by that time I was so sick of people telling me the truth with a capital T that was the one perfect truth that I had to believe in that was infallible but I couldn't question it that you know if they had said just believe in the Buddhist teachings I would say bye bye no thank you okay but we were really encouraged you know they said you're intelligent people so you think and you apply reasoning to it and then you also put it into practice and you see if it works when you practice it so like we were talking the other day if something works you know what do they say about the proof of the pudding is in eating it mm-hmm. yeah so the same thing with the Dharma you know that's how you know that it really works is if you practice it and it helps your mind now of course it's not going to help your mind you know tomorrow like we were saying you know you don't meditate on patience once and your anger has gone forever <laughs> but if we practice it diligently over time gradually our mind will change if we don't practice if we just have a lot of notebooks with notes in it and a lot of handouts but we don't practice then we're not going to experience the result and then our faith in, and our trust in the objects of refuge is still going to be rather low okay? because we haven't really tried to put it into practice but if you take even one thing that the Buddha said and apply it to your life and it helps you then right away you know that that works 
and that gives you trust and confidence in the teachings. One of my teachers, Kishino Andarge, who was at the library in Dharamsala, because we would all show up with our little notebooks, you know, and this kind of, this was 30 some years ago, this kind of paper that's falling apart and the notebooks falling apart. We take our notes and very diligently, and then he would say, But when you go back to your own country, if you just have a lot of notebooks and you put those on the top shelf, but you never take them out and read them and you never think about what you heard, then it's as if you're going home empty handed, even though you're carrying a pile of notebooks. Okay? So it's very much that thing that we have to, you know, put the teachings in the practice, and then that will build our faith and confidence and trust. And I would say most of us have issues with trust. So uh, developing that ability to trust is an important one for us. If I can diverge a little bit on the the issue of trust here. Uh, Is it an issue for people? Yeah? Oh, I thought so. Um, <laughs> it's an issue for me too. Um, I remember reading somewhere that we should give people the amount of trust that they can actually bear. Yeah, and that made me think because I think a lot of the times when I feel that my trust has been betrayed. It was actually because of an initial error I made in that I gave somebody more trust than they were capable of bearing. In other words, I wasn't very good at distinguishing somebody else's ability to bear trust. And in addition, you know, when I did trust them, I really went to the extreme and thought, then they're never going to make any mistake. Yeah, for me, trust meant somebody's perfect. They're not going to make any mistake. Now, when we're talking about ordinary sentient beings, is that a realistic expectation to have that they're never going to make any mistake? That's not very realistic, is it? You know? So, when we first of all make an error in you know assessing somebody's ability to bear trust and when we make an an error and have the expectation that they're always going to come through and never going to make a mistake then is it actually their quote quote fault that the, uh, the trust was broken or was there an initial misjudgment on our part that we need to take responsibility for? And I know that, that coming to this point in my meditation was, of course, not very pretty because we never like to think that we have a role in our own pain. We would much rather blame other people. But I tell you, once I really uh, accepted that, yes, my mind played a role in this situation, my misjudgment, then it actually helped me to heal because I stopped blaming the other person. And I realized that there was something that I could do to uh, prevent such situations in the future. And that's where I developed that little slogan I taught you the other day. That is, sentient beings do what sentient beings do. Okay, it's not sentient beings do what Buddhas do. Yeah. Okay, sentient beings do what sentient beings do. Sentient beings are beings under the influence of afflictions, whose minds are clouded with self-centeredness, who cannot see things clearly, who are overwhelmed by the force of their past karma. Yeah. And so if I'm trusting them to be perfect, that's my stupidity, isn't it? Yeah. It's like I don't trust myself to be perfect. Do any of you trust yourself to be perfect? No, we all know 
we make mistakes. So why do we put it on other people that they have to never make a mistake? You know? So now when I trust people, I include in it, you know, I trust you also to sometimes make mistakes. And sometimes you'll probably make mistakes at the time I least expected. But when you do, that's my thing where I have to be flexible and adapt. Okay? So I found that that helped quite a bit with, with issues of trust. In terms of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, now, it's a different situation because whereas ordinary sentient beings whose minds are overwhelmed by self-centeredness and affliction and karma are just going to kind of, you know, go chow bye-bye and do who knows what when we don't expect it, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha are not going to do that because they've eliminated all self-centeredness and all ignorance. Okay? So in that way, they're more trustworthy than sentient beings. Okay. Now, does that mean that the Buddha's never going to say anything that you don't like to hear? No. It doesn't mean that. Okay. Because the Buddha may teach and we have the text and we follow the text. But the texts are what they teach is exactly the opposite of what ignorance and self-centered mind holds on to. So of course when we really listen to the teachings and take them to heart, they're going to push all of our buttons. You know? So if you went through this entire week of retreat and your buttons didn't get pushed, then somehow I didn't do my job in teaching you well enough. Yeah? So part of being a, a Dharma student, and we're all in that boat, is our buttons get pushed because of the buttons of ignorance and clinging and craving and self-centeredness and self-pity and all of that. So those buttons are going to get pushed. So don't expect that the teachings are always going to be like milk and honey. Yeah? They're going to push our buttons. And when our buttons get pushed, we should rejoice. Okay? So instead of going, ah, 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 you know, we should say, oh, this is good. You know, now I get to look at a part of myself that uh, has always been hidden from me, that I haven't had the courage to look at or have, that hasn't been pointed out to me before. So this is very good that my buttons are getting pushed. Okay? If there's a, a certain teaching that you try and understand, let's say like rebirth or something like that, and it's difficult for you at this time, then you just put it on the back burner. You don't throw it out, you know, and yet you don't say, I believe because the Buddha said either, you know. You put it on the back burner and you continue to practice the Dharma teachings that really help you and then you come back to that teaching from time to time and really review it and, uh, and you'll find that your understanding of it will deepen. Okay? So we should expect our buttons to get pushed. And that's all very nice to say when we're sitting here and we're hearing it but when it happens yeah we all react like what's happening why is my teacher saying this why does the text say this I don't like this Ah." you know so if you can catch yourself at that time and say oh this is my ignorant self-centered mind yeah let's just chill out here hang in keep thinking about it keep applying the dharma I don't need to freak out. I don't need to reject everything. Okay. And that, that can be a, a nice way to deal with things. Okay. Anyway, that was a long distraction about trust. But, you know, even when our buttons get pushed, we still trust the Buddha's teachings because, you know, we can know that they're coming from great compassion 
and from a very deep wisdom that was generated due to great compassion. Okay? Okay, then verse 19. Um, although Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas, those are the hearers and solitary realizers who aim for arhatship. So although they can remain in equipoise for many hundreds of eons due to the power of their samadhi, they have not paid you any attention and so are constrained to sleep for a long time in a gulf of peacefulness. Okay. So the hearers and solitary realizers, they're aiming for arhatship. That's their own personal liberation in which they are free from the afflictive uh, obscurations, that is, ignorance, afflictions, and the karma that causes rebirth. And due to the power of their samadhi, which remains single-pointed on the emptiness of inherent existence, the ultimate nature of phenomena, they uh, can remain in that meditative equipoise on the nature of reality for hundreds and thousands of eons. Okay? So even after their physical body dies, you know, their mind remains in that, that meditative equipoise. So it's very blissful for them, but they're not able to benefit sentient beings at that point. And the reason why is because they lack the great compassion that's going to take that step to actually be involved and be committed to benefiting sentient beings. Okay? So it says they have not paid you any attention. So you is the great compassion. So while they have compassion, they don't have the great compassion. And so as a result, it says they sleep for a long time in a gulf of peacefulness. What that means is not literally that they sleep, okay? But that they are in that meditative state on nirvana. That's what this is called peacefulness here. Okay, so it's their personal nirvana, their personal liberation, and they remain single-pointed on that, okay? And as a result, they aren't able to actively benefit sentient beings at that time. Okay, what happens is that um, after a while when the Buddha sees the time is right the Buddha wakes them up from their meditative equipoise and says very well you've eliminated the afflictive obscurations and you're free from samsara but you haven't eliminated the cognitive obscurations and so you're not omniscient and you're unable to work for the uh, vast welfare of all sentient beings so you have to generate great compassion and practice the bodhisattva path so even though they had gone through the five paths of either hearers or solitary realizers and attained arhatship when the Buddha wakes them up from their samadhi they have to start all over on the first of the bodhisattva paths and go through the whole bodhisattva series of five paths and ten grounds to attain uh, full enlightenment. And so that's why we're encouraged that if we meet the teachings on bodhicitta and the Mahayana teachings to enter that, that system of teachings right from the beginning because in the in the long term we will reach enlightenment sooner okay now it's true that those who aspire for for our hardship may reach liberation sooner than we reach liberation okay if we go directly in the bodhisattva vehicle but when you're motivated by that great compassion and that uh, incredible devotion to being of benefit to sentient beings then even it may take you longer to be liberated yourself from cyclic existence you don't mind that because you know in the long term you're going to be enlightened quicker and that that will be bring the most benefit to the greatest number of sentient beings okay so your outlook on life switches from 
instead of what's the best for me to what's the best for everybody. So this is a very powerful way to switch our focus, isn't it? You know, especially in the previous days we talked about how the more self-centered and self-absorbed we are, the more suffering we experience and the more we are able to turn our focus to other living beings, the more we're able to put our own misery in perspective and see that it's actually not that bad compared to the misery of other living beings. Okay, and so that helps us a great deal, even on on just a small personal level of this life. But, you know, even on a bigger level, when we turn the focus to other sentient beings and work for their benefit, um, it really makes the mind quite large and expansive. And I think that helps us um, when we are focused on the welfare of all living beings because we see all of ourselves as part of that same body, the same way the hand and the foot see themselves as part of the same organism. I think when we see things in that way, just our whole perspective really, really changes. And especially when we have wisdom, too, then we'll know how to make good decisions. People often come to me, uh, you know, for, for private counseling or private interviews, and they'll say, I don't know what to do. Should I do this or should I do that? You know? And it's very interesting because so often, you know, our, uh, the criteria we use to figure out what decision to make is how will I receive the most benefit in this life? Isn't it? Yeah? I mean, even, it's so amazing. Watch when you eat lunch and what you choose to put in your spoon or your fork. You know, because it's not like you eat all of one thing all at once, is it? You eat a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a little bit, and you play with your food and mix it around and get the right amount of sauce on each bite and, and you take, you know, the bite of whatever it is that you feel like eating at that moment. And what's the motivation behind all of that? My pleasure immediately, isn't it? It's just amazing. Really, this is one thing to watch yourself eat. Okay? It's just astounding. Because we, that's how we make our, just, our choice. Yeah. Some of you are looking a little embarrassed. <laughs> um, but, you know, on other things that we do, you know, it's the same way. When you look, what sheets are you going to put on your bed? Or what color towel are you going to have, you know, when you come with to Cloud Mountain? Or what clothes are you buying? Or, you know, all these kinds of things. Isn't the main criteria, how can I have the most immediate amount of pleasure right now? Yeah? The same thing, we look in the mirror in the morning. Oh, I better pull my hair that way, you know? And if I look better and then people will like me. <laughs> We're still teenagers at heart, aren't we? It's scary. It's absolutely scary, you know? Oh my goodness, huh? I don't have much hair left. I better get some. <laughs> or my hair's all turning gray. I better dye it. Okay, because I need friends and I want the most amount of happiness and you know. And so even even when we you know, when you go to get your glasses or whether you choose glasses or contacts, isn't it the same thing? How am I gonna look better? And then which glass frames? This, this red, you know. It's like how am I gonna look good so other people like me? 
just focused on that. It's shocking. It's horrifying. Yeah? And we might as well admit it. Okay? So, yeah, when we go to make big decisions in our life, we're using the same criteria. Yeah? If I make this decision, you know, what is our criteria? How can I get the most approval from the people who I want approval from and the least amount of blame? How, which decision is going to give me the best reputation? Okay. How am I going to make the most money or have the most uh, uh, material possessions? How, which decision can make me look good in the eyes of other people? Which decision will allow me to have the most immediate pleasure, sense pleasure? You know, that, those are the criteria we make when, you know, deciding whether we move here or move there or take this job or that job or buy this car or that car or marry this person or marry that person. You know, it's all revolving around my happiness in this life. Hmm? Which is happiness in this life, there's nothing wrong with it. Buddha's not saying don't be happy. But when we're focused only on the happiness of this life and it's our personal happiness isn't our mind stream a little bit narrow? isn't our perspective a bit narrow? and doesn't that narrow perspective that is obsessed with our own pleasure actually make us more unhappy even in this life even in this life okay so if you're very attached to having a good reputation, aren't you all, all the more bummed out when you have a bad one? If you're very attached to having a lot of money, aren't you all the more upset when the stock market goes down? Yeah. If you're very attached to having good food, when the food isn't so good, aren't you really more unhappy? So we begin to see very clearly that this attachment only to the happiness of this life, it makes us more miserable now, number one. Okay. Number two, in an effort to obtain only the happiness of this life, we often wind up uh, doing mean things to other people. Why do we kill? Why do we steal? Why do we sleep around? Why do we lie? Why do we backbite? Why do we cause disharmony and speak harshly to other people and idle, do idle gossip? Why do we do all those things? Isn't it all motivated at one way or another so that I can get the most pleasure now? So we can see how that self-centeredness that is hooked into the eight worldly concerns, which is, and the eight worldly concerns are trying to get as much happiness as we can in this very life with a lot of attachment okay. we can see that that attachment and that self-centeredness actually brings us more misery now creates, moves us to uh, abrogate our own ethical values go against our own values and principles and create negative karma Okay, which then weighs on our mind stream and we feel guilty. Yeah, which even though we went through the whole thing of how guilt isn't worthwhile, we still beat ourselves up about it. And it obscures our mind from gaining spiritual realizations. Okay. So then somebody's going to say, What? I'm not supposed to have any happiness in this life? No, that's not what the Buddha said. Okay, there's nothing wrong with happiness in this life. The difficulty is the attachment to it and the upset that comes when we don't get it. So it's the attachment and the, the anger that we want to eliminate. If we don't have attachment and anger, if happiness comes our way, then actually we're able to enjoy it more because we aren't so afraid it's going to disappear. Okay? And so we're able to enjoy it when it's there, and when it's not there, we're also okay. Doesn't that sound better? 
Doesn't that sound better? You know? You have a good discussion with your friend. You enjoy that discussion. You don't see that friend for a while. You're perfectly okay. Yeah, your mind doesn't spin out. Oh, they don't like me. Oh, I must have said something wrong. You know? And then you see that there's many other friends that you enjoy being with, too. Yeah, you get the food you like. It's nice. You eat it. When it's done, you're okay. And if you get food you don't like, you're not so unhappy. Okay? So we're talking about subduing the attachment and the, the uh, anger. Yeah, we're not talking about not being happy. Okay. Boy, we really got... <laughs> yeah, but I really went off on a tangent. You know, it's very interesting when you study the philosophical text. You know, in the monasteries, they'll have an outline. And they'll have, you know, this, and it's divided into so many points, and that's divided, and, and that's divided, and so many, that's divided. And your heading may be this, but even in the philosophical text, they'll take you way out there <laughs> to explain something that relates to this, that relates to this, that relates to this, that relates to this, that relates to this. But you, sometimes when you're way out there, you forgot what your main heading was. <laughs> yeah? So it happens, uh, I do it in. Okay, so verse 20. But the perfect Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have already offered into your hands whatever authority they have, and so they remain benefiting others until the end of existence. Okay, so the perfect Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, they're perfect because they've eliminated the uh, self-centered thought. Yeah. They have offered into the hands of compassion. So it's personifying compassion. They've offered into your hands whatever authority they have. Okay? So they have offered, you know, any personal authority that they have, they've offered into the hands of great compassion. So that means that whatever decisions they make, yeah, those decisions are based on great compassion. That's the criteria by which they're making decisions. We make decisions based on our pleasure, self-centeredness, okay? The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas make decisions based on great compassion about what is the best for all living beings. And so that's why sometimes Buddhas and Bodhisattvas may make decisions that we just flat out don't understand because we don't have the scope of their mind. You know, we're seeing some little fragment of something and making our decision according to the fragment we see. But they have a much broader vision and are making that decision based on that broader vision which is unbeknownst to us. Okay. But we can still start now trying to make our decisions based on compassion. So instead of just when we have a decision to make, thinking, you know, how can I get the most pleasure or how can I be the most famous or have the best reputation or whatever, you know, to think, I'll tell you the, the, the criteria I use to, to make decisions. First is I think... Um, which situation will I be able to keep uh, ethical conduct in the best? Okay. So bottom line for me is I've got to keep some ethical conduct because if I don't have that, then everything is lost. Okay. So which situation? You know, there might be, you know, this thing and this thing and... You know, this one I might be more famous and get more money and you know, whatever, and that one maybe not. But if I do this one, boy, my mind's going to get really tempted and out of whack and uh, likely to create a lot of negative karma and maybe break my precepts. Okay? So I really sit back and decide, okay, which situation will enable me 
to keep my ethical standards the best. Okay, so that's one criteria. Second criteria is which situation will uh, support my development of great compassion and bodhicitta the best. Okay? Because I know that I've got to cultivate the, the qualities of compassion and bodhicitta. So which situation will foster that the best? So, you know, in analyzing that, sometimes that might be, well, which situation will enable me to have enough quiet time to do my meditative practice? Or it might be which situation is going to call on me to come out of myself and actively benefit others? Yeah, so, you know, this path to generate bodhicitta and great compassion, there's many ways that to do it, and there's different things we may need to do at different times. But, you know, of the decisions I'm trying to make, which one will enable me to generate bodhicitta the best and great compassion? And then also, which situation will I be able to be of the greatest benefit to others in? Yeah. Okay. And when I think of benefiting others, it's not just how can I benefit them this life, but how can I benefit them in the long term? So, of course, that's linked up with my own cultivation of wisdom and compassion in my Dharma practice. Okay. So I use those kinds of things as criteria when I make decisions. And if I have to give up some worldly happiness or worldly benefit for the sake of keeping good ethical conduct, for the sake of, of um, you know, being able to practice great compassion and bodhicitta for the sake of benefiting others, then I'm willing to do that because I'm very clear what my priorities are. I think we get confused in making decisions when we are not clear what our priorities are. Yeah. And then when our priorities aren't clear, then we become that donkey with the ring through our nose and attachment pulls us here and there. Yeah. Okay. So also I think many people are very confused and don't know how to make decisions. You know, and because we have so many choices nowadays, so making a decision is very difficult. Like I was telling you about the cookie counter in the grocery store, it's like, how do you choose? When I first went to India, you know, the little shop, there was one kind of cookie, milk bickies. Remember them? When you went to the store, that's what you got is milk bickies there wasn't any choice you had no confusion okay you weren't changing your mind and spending two hours there was just this little package of milk bickies you know white plastic with red letters you see I have good memory for certain things (laughs) the wrong things (laughs) yeah Okay, so sometimes now we have so many choices that we get really confused. And especially when we're trying to eke out the most pleasure of this life for ourselves right now. That makes us so confused right now. Whereas, you know, often this thing, remember I was talking before about cutting out some options? Yeah? And narrowing our options. So, so that they conform with our priorities in life. Yeah, taking out the the motivation of you know what, how am I going to get the most fame and the most possessions and the most recognition? Take that out from our motivation and maybe stick to you know how can I keep my precepts and how can I be of service and how can I develop bodhicitta? Yeah, and so cut out some of the superfluous options and the superfluous mental states that make us confused and then just try and and really uh, have our priorities clear and make wise decisions according to the Dharma and if we do that then we're going to have much less regret later on in our lives because we'll have made wise well thought out decisions Okay. 
So the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas have already offered into the hands of great compassion whatever authority they have. Okay, so they've given it over to great compassion. So great compassion is the boss. Yeah. Our mind is under the tyranny of the dictator of self-centeredness. The Buddhas and Bodhisattvas mind is under the authority of great compassion. And who is happier? Who's happier? We look out for our own benefit. The Buddhas look out for the benefit of others. Who's happier? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah? That those who look out for the benefit of others are happier than those of us who are looking out for our own benefit. It's a very important thing to remember. Okay, and so they remain benefiting others until the end of existence. So until all sentient beings are liberated from samsara, from the cycle of existence, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas remain benefiting us. That's like the verse that we said yesterday when we were doing the um, aspiring bodhicitta. The verse from Shantideva, for as long as space endures and as long as sentient beings remain, so may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. So really making that commitment, you know, to stay until the end of samsara to help sentient beings. Verse 21, as an inferior mind like my own sees it, when someone turns their attention to you, compassion, they urgently think all the suffering that beings must endure lies over there. So I had, I had better wave them on down here. <laughs> okay? So uh, when us beings, you know, uh, see when we start expanding our mind with compassion and we... Uh, look at the suffering of sentient beings then you know we see that it's it's really overwhelming and we think I better do something about it yeah and so there's the commitment to do something about it okay so I think that's what it means when it says all the suffering that beings must endure lies over there so I had better wave them on down here yeah so and it could also indicate the, um, the taking and giving meditation. Okay? All the suffering that sentient beings have, from my perspective, is over there. So I had better wave it down. I had better take it on myself, you know, in the taking and giving meditation. And then give them my happiness instead. Okay. I think 21, that's a good number to stop with mm-hmm. this year. Okay, and then next year we'll, we'll go on to some others. Does anybody by any chance have a copy of A Guide to Bodhisattva's Way of Life here? With you? Okay, I have it in my room too because... Uh, okay, you want to grab it? Because there's some verses that... Um, apply to in in it that apply to verse 20 that I thought it might be nice to read to you You know that thing. It's it could mean so many different things. Yeah, I'm not real clear on the meaning. So, if we take it to mean that, that in our mistaken vision we see other people suffering, but we don't see our own, that's true. Yeah. So you know clearly, 
and that, that attitude needs to be remedied if we take it to be that their suffering is there and I better take it on to myself we can also take it that way because it says when you first turn your attention to compassion, you know? Yeah. Is it saying that, you know, at first, like you're not going to get it right away? Yeah. Yeah. It could mean that. I'm not, I'm not clear. Okay, let's go back to verse 20, because it talks uh, here about um, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas giving over whatever authority they have to compassion. So in... Uh, Guide to Bodhisattva's Way of Life, Chapter 3. There's some um, verses about this. Okay? And so here, this is the chapter in which uh, it leads up to. Let me just see. Yeah, th- these are the verses that lead up to taking the Bodhisattva vow. And it's from this chapter that we recited the verses yesterday of taking the Bodhisattva vow. So these, um, before, this is leading up to the taking of the Bodhisattva's vow. And so, um, okay, yeah, the verses say, here's, here are some examples of turning your authority over to great compassion. May I be the medicine and the physician for the sick. May I be their nurse until their illness never recurs. This is talking about physical illness, but also the illness of samsara. With showers of food and drink, may I overcome the afflictions of hunger and thirst. May I become food and drink during times of famine. So offering our body to become food and drink for those who need it. May I be an inexhaustible treasury for the destitute. With various forms of assistance, may I remain in their presence. So, helping the destitute, never giving up on them. For the sake of accomplishing the welfare of all beings, I freely give up my body, enjoyments, and all my virtues of the three times. That sounds scary. Yeah, I give up my body my enjoyments and all my virtues for the welfare of sentient beings who don't even say thank you who don't even realize how hard I'm working for their benefit and how much I'm sacrificing to save them and I'm going to give up all this for these idiots this is the thought of the self-centered mind isn't it yeah and so here you really see how strong Bodhicitta makes our mind. Because our mind has to be strong to be able to give our body enjoyments and virtues to sentient beings. No matter whether they say thank you or please or grateful or criticize us or no matter what. But we do it because it benefits them. And that's it. Not because we receive something out of it. Really hard. You know, because it's like, okay, they don't have to give me presents, but thank you sometimes with help. Not even expecting that, okay? Yeah? And so you just give yourself over totally to compassion. Yeah, the whole focus is on benefiting others. Surrendering everything is nirvana, and my mind seeks nirvana. If I must surrender everything, it is better that I give it to sentient beings. What we want to surrender surrender is our ignorance and our self-centeredness. Okay? We want to give those up. And what we're surrendering to sentient beings is all the objects that we cling on to with ignorance and attachment and self-centeredness. For the sake of all beings, I have made this body pleasureless. Let them continually beat it, revile it, and cover it with filth. Let them play with my body, let them laugh at it and ridicule it. What does it matter to me? I have given my body to them. Now you're going to go. This sounds like, um, what's the word? Uh, Masochism. Yeah. 
you know, this sounds like psychologically unhealthy that I'm going to give them my body and let them beat it and revile it and cover it with filth and laugh at me and ridicule me. You know, what kind of masochist am I? How low is my self-esteem? You know, how dysfunctional is my mind that I'm even asking sentient beings to do this, let alone allowing it. Okay? Here you can see the difference between the masochism that comes out of ignorance and confusion and the generosity that comes out of having overcome detachment and self-centeredness. Okay? They're two totally different states of mind. Because the the state of mind that is psychologically unhealthy is the mind that feels I'm a worm, I'm worthless, People are justified in hating me and it's good if they destroy me because I'm not even worthy to live. That is psychologically unhealthy and that's coming from ignorance and self-centeredness. Okay. That's not wisdom. That's total garbage thought. Yeah. However, if we look in our mind and we see how ignorance and self-centeredness keeps us trapped in samsara keeps us you know with wrong priorities and causing suffering to ourselves and others and if we really have the wish to overcome those and attain our spiritual goals of liberation and enlightenment then being attached to this body is not a big priority for us why? because we see first of all what is this body? Lungs, kidneys, intestines, tongue, yeah. heart, brain, skin, eyeballs, pancreas. It's not something that's gorgeous, is it? You know, this body is not something gorgeous. First of all. Second of all, we're going to have to separate from it sometime, aren't we? Death is definite. We're going to have to separate from this body. So what's the sense of being attached to something that is composed of kind of yucky stuff and that we're going to have to separate from someday? There's no sense in being attached to this kind of thing, is there? Imagine for a moment what it would feel like if you weren't attached to your body. Okay. So on a very gross level, that would mean you wouldn't care what you look like. Okay. You keep your body clean and neat for the benefit of sentient beings, but you wouldn't be obsessed about what you look like. We would be so much relaxed, more relaxed about what food we got because we wouldn't be so obsessed with it. However much we slept, we would be okay with it. Okay. Aging would be okay. Okay. You know, getting sick would not bum us out because we would still see meaning and purpose to our life. You know, there's so much that could really come in a healthy way if we weren't so attached to this body. So, these sentences here in in Gaita Bodhisattva's way of life, you know, of offering our body to others, is coming out of that spirit of not being attached to our body. It's not coming out of hating ourselves or hating our body or any kind of psychological mess like that. Okay? Make some sense? Yeah? It reminds me of that story where the Buddha was, I might get wrong, he was apparently an older woman who saw the lion with with cubs that had... He was a prince and he offered his body to the tigress so so that they could eat. Right. And uh, in our time that I heard that story, that, that's very inspirational to me to progress on the path because it really gives you a larger view. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's, I think, something a lot of people fear is 
is, is that really intense physical pain. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, if, if you really think about it, even if you got eaten by lions, you'd only hurt for practical situation of the Chinese uh, invasion of Tibet then many of the, the monastics they chose to flee rather than stay there and let themselves be tortured and abused in, in the prison in the communist prisons and that seems like a very good decision I agree with you I think it was a good decision what this verse is saying is not that you make your body available and let people create negative karma by abusing your body okay because that's not very compassionate if you allow people to create negative karma that's not something that's benefiting them so if you can get out of the prison and escape to a safe place you're preventing those people from creating negative karma in relationship to you and also you're trying to preserve your body so that you can continue to practice in a precious human life and progress along the path what this verse is referring to is not that you deliberately put yourself in situations of danger and let people create negative karma you know by abusing your body or abusing you but rather when you're trying to benefit them if in the course of benefiting them you experience pain or if in the course of benefiting somebody they turn on you yeah that you're willing to endure that and you don't regret having tried to help them that's what it means okay yeah so it's very important to, I'm glad you're asking these questions because it's important to understand these things because many of these passages seem very extreme to us and I think that they're worded in extreme ways in order to show us the exact opposite of our self-centeredness but in showing us the exact opposite and challenging the deep level of self-centeredness they also open it up for us to have these kinds of doubts yeah because I remember that there was one um, the story about Aryadeva you know who's a disciple of Nagarjuna's and a non-Buddhist came and asked for his eye and he plucked his eye out and gave it to this guy and I remember hearing this story and going huh? <laughs> you know of what benefit is that? What, you know what's this other guy going to do with an eyeball? and it doesn't benefit you anything for giving up your eye you know? and then I realized that the purpose of the story was not you know that because clearly in a practical level it didn't make any sense but the purpose of the story was to show how the mind can be so unattached to your body that you can give up parts of your body 
Okay, that's the point of the story. The point of the story isn't that you look for the first person who wants your eyeball and then you go like that, you know. But it's just kind of challenging. When I think of giving my eye, you know, instantly, my mind, my, I don't want to give up my eyeball to anybody. I don't want to go blind. Yeah. Especially if some guy's just going to toss away. Yeah. But I can see there, you know, how my mind immediately grasps my eyeball, my body, me, 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 you know. And so, oh, what would it feel like not to have that kind of attachment to my body? Whereby, if it were the most beneficial thing, I could do that. Okay? So that's what we're trying to, to just even imagine in our minds what that would feel like. You made me um, reflect and chuckle a little bit because I just was updating my will before I came here and one of the things you have to decide is, you know, do I want to give any parts of my body to science? <laughs> and it was really hard. <laughs> and you just this eyeball thing of like, well, God, I'm going to be dead. And I'm still going to give up my eyeballs. <laughs> somebody else's past misery it's not happening now okay let's sit quietly